Amen. Thank you so much. Good morning. So wonderful to be with you on this extraordinarily cold day. And uh, we're praising God on these Lord's days that he is here with us. We're going to be turning in our Bibles today to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at the third part, frankly, of the farewell address that the Apostle Paul is delivering to the leadership from Ephesus that have gathered together, you see, in the setting of Miletus, about 20 to 30 miles uh, south of Ephesus. And they're getting their marching orders, aren't they, from Paul as they're trying to determine how to lead effectively. And so over the course of these past few weeks, we've been exploring this whole subject of biblical leadership how to lead effectively in a culture such as ours. And now we're inching towards the conclusion of what Paul would want to be able to share on this subject. Hopefully you found your way there. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, down through verse 38. Thought I would show something to get our bearings once again. It's a picture, an aerial view shot of Miletus. Appears on the screen if you're watching online be able to see this as well. And you'll want to notice that this is very close to the shoreline, isn't it? Because the Aegean Sea uh, is just on this screen at least, what you'll notice in the upper corner. And the Apostle Paul is waiting for his ship to arrive. He's going to be heading out. He's going to be moving southward to Jerusalem. But he has some imparting wisdom some extraordinary truth that he wants to be able to invest into the minds and into the hearts of the leadership of the church of Ephesus that I think we need to be able to embrace as well, whether you are chairing a board, chairing a committee, a member of a board, member of a committee, you are shepherding a home, you are involved in leadership in a classroom, in the, in the business realm, in the medical profession, in the neighborhoods, well, you have the opportunity to lead, and this culture needs leaders. And one of the key distinctives of leadership is influence. And my definition of leadership is the ability to influence others to do what needs to be done for the glory of God. I'll say it again. It involves influence. It's the ability to influence others to do what needs to be done for the glory of God. They may not feel like it, they might not be prone to do it, but leaders have a way of inspiring, a way of challenging, a way of encouraging so that people are being influenced to do what needs to be done, what otherwise would not have been done, and it's all done for the glory of God. This is what Paul is all about. This is what we ought to be all about. We pick it up now in verse 32. We take it down through verse 38. And here Luke the physician continues in his writings of this profound historical book with these words, but now and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. 
In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. And being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And you see from there, he'll head southward to Jerusalem, be put on trial. And being put on trial, he will then be sent to Rome. And we'll track that in the days to come. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. So now, Father, we're thanking you that we have had opportunity to explore this extraordinary historical book to be able to delve deep into the principles that are found here that lay a foundation for effective ministry. We are gathered and then we're scattered through the course of the week. And even in this time of COVID where there seems to be more scattered than gathered, we have had opportunity nonetheless via live stream and then onward through the course of the days, subsequent days, the YouTube presentations of these worship services to be able to explore the depths and the breadth of your word. We're thankful for it. Knit our hearts together. Bind us together. We're not islands set apart from one another. We're connected through the workings of the Holy Spirit. Moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things still in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Farewells are always difficult. And we've explored some of the great farewell speeches in these prior weeks one more. Ronald Reagan is looking out at the nation via the cameras. It's January 11th of 1989 as he would open his words with these thoughts. This is the 34th time I will speak to you from the Oval Office and the last. We've been together eight years now. And soon it'll be time for me to go. But before I do, I wanted to share some thoughts, some of which I have been saving for a long time. That it's been the honor of my life to be your president. So many of you have written the past few weeks to say thanks. But I could say as much to you. Nancy and I are grateful for the opportunity you gave us to serve. 
One of the things about the presidency is that you're always somewhat apart. You spend a lot of time going too fast in a car that someone else is driving and then seeing the people through tinted glass. It's the parents holding up a child. It's the wave you saw too late and you couldn't return. And so many times I want to stop and, and reach out from behind the glass and connect. So, well, maybe I can do a little of that tonight. For people ask how I, I feel about leaving. And the fact is, as they would say, quote, parting is such sweet sorrow, unquote. And the sweet part, well, it's California and the ranch and freedom. The sorrow, the goodbyes, of course, on leaving this beautiful place. Well, the Apostle Paul is in the midst of saying his goodbyes. And as we have said in prior weeks, uh, last words produce lasting impact. And now we are about to encounter his last words. So what I want to do with you now is we continue to explore how he was shaping the present and the future leadership of the Church of Ephesus for cutting-edge ministry. I want to draw three essentials in these final verses this morning and deal with that very thing. And the first essential comes out of verse 32. We're going to be phrasing it using some of the wording found in verse 32. That as believers are being shaped by the word of grace, it'll appear on the screen now, biblically based leaders, number one, establish priorities that are pleasing to God. Let me say it again. As believers are being shaped by the word of grace, not by a leader's opinions. Biblically-based leaders, number one, establish priorities that are pleasing to God. Let's dig in. So now, notice not once, not twice, but now for the third time in his farewell speech, he utilizes a but now. And he uses, furthermore, and now. In verse 22, you will read, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. In verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And now, verse 32, And now I commend you to God. A leader understands the nowness of life. Leaders understand if you are chairing a a board sharing, sharing a team, sharing a committee, if you are a member of any of, if you're shaping a new generation coming in, you are a person of influence. And as a person of influence, you've got to be a person who understands what is to be prioritized, and you've got to understand how you link the now of today 
into the tomorrows of this person's life and now. And now I commend you to God. This is poignant. Circle that word, commend. In the Greek, it is the same word that was used on that cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus, hanging on that cross, would cry out in, the, in those final moments, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now notice that even in his most agonizing moment, he was father conscious. There was a vertical dimension, even in the midst of his time of adversity. But notice furthermore that in his time of adversity, he said, I, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Or in this verse, it's the commendation of. Paul is committing, Paul is commending, but he is bringing an upward focus when they are challenged, these leaders, to go back into Ephesus 20 to 30 miles away and face the challenging aspect that a riot has just occurred. There's pushback against Christians. How am I going to lead effectively in the midst of the pushback culture that I've been placed in? That's something you and I've got to grapple with on a daily basis. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Jesus said. And so, at the beginning of the day, you, in your devotions, you end by saying, and into thy hands I commit this day. That's your preview. And at the end of the day, into thy hands I commit the next day as you review this day. And you take your review and you take your preview and you bring it together in a committal before God that has a vertical dimension to it and now here is a man of influence. He is shaping these men at the shoreline of Miletus, which today is right next to the shoreline of Turkey, the Aegean Sea. You could almost see the Apostle Paul's energy. You can almost feel that sense of magnetism, the intensity of his leadership. There is an end now. He understands and he gets the day of today and links it to the days of tomorrow. Do you do that? And he says, I commend you. So you commit your children to you. Commit the family to you, Lord. And then you consider the days and you commend the days to the Lord. And then you look at the students you're teaching, you look at the patients you're treating, you look at the co-workers in which you're involved with day in, day out. If you're retired, you're considering ways, now sleeves rolled up to pour your extra time now into the next generations. You're commending. Into thy hands I commit all of this, you see. And you're still in verse 32, and you've made your way into the third word, and now I commend. I commend you. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You're up to the word, the word. This is the word of God. 
And the word of God has got to be taught the integrity and the authority of God's word press upon our hearts. When men are training to be pastors or professors of theology, they have to read a lot of um, theological works, and they make note of the various theologians they're reading. There were two German theologians that loved Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Adolf Schlatter and Theodor Zahn, evangelicals, recognized scholars, even those who didn't hold their views respected their writings. There was a man who was introduced to Professor Schlatter one time. And he spoke to the professor and he said to him, Sir, I'm so thankful to be able to meet a man who stands on the word of God and holds a position such as you. I was struck by the professor's response. Professor Schlatter responded by saying to him, I would like for you to know I do not stand upon the word of God. I stand under the word of God. which, of course, is the way that this senior pastor wants to approach each and every exposition of God's word. It is authoritative, and so we place ourselves under the one who has supreme authority, the one who has uttered his word that's inspired and all true. But what distinguishes this word is what comes next. The Apostle Paul there on that shoreline says, and now, it's very contemporary, I commend or I commit you to God. This is the way a parent, in fact, prays for their children. And to the word of his grace. Now, people, what distinguishes Christianity among all other religions of this world? Grace. It's grace that sets Christianity apart. It's grace that sets Christians apart. It's that word grace. All you have to do is to open the first three chapters of Genesis and you'll be able to drink in the depths and the breadth of grace. Adam sins. Adam and Eve flee God. We are in a culture of fright and a culture of flight. Who comes looking for the other? Is Adam looking for God? No. God pursues Adam and Eve. And in that opening third chapter there is the pursuit of grace. Now Adam had been informed by God in the day in which you eat of this, you shall surely die. And his soul did die because death involves separation. But his body lives on. And there's the tension of a dead soul and a living body. We come into this world 
physically alive but spiritually dead because of sin. But not only do you see in that third chapter the pursuit of grace, you also see in that third chapter the life of grace because God allows Adam to go on living physically. That's grace. And then furthermore, what you will find God saying to Eve in particular, Adam and Eve in general, born of Eve will be this one who will crush the head of this serpent. That's the Messiah of grace. Now, just from that third chapter, you've been able to see then the pursuit of grace, the life of grace, the promise of grace, Messiah, all wrapped up in the richness of what God is offering a fallen humanity where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which takes us back to Vidal's book on Lincoln, where he talks about the day in which the president's counselors came to talk about the time after the war was drawing to a close. They wanted to punish the South, their enemy, so they thought. When asked how he planned to deal with the South, Abraham Lincoln replied, I will treat them as if they never left. Loved ones, you look at your life. And when you look at your life through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ, though we came to this world sinful by nature, when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, he treats you like you never left. And so you want to be able to allow for that, to impress your heart, stir your soul, guide you as you move forward in life because you're still in verse 32. And now you spot the three priorities, three significant words found here that are so moving the Apostle Paul as he wants to impress upon the leadership what it is that God wants to do in that region of Ephesus. First word, build. He's able to build you up in a culture that tears you down, here is a God who builds you up. He is the constructive God in a destructive society. Now, maybe you feel so torn down by life. It's inevitable in a world that has been impacted by sin. But along comes the one who offers the pursuit of grace, Along comes the one who demonstrates the reality of the life of grace. Along comes the one who's delivered the promise of grace in the form of Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden you find that in a culture that seems to be on the verge of demolition, here is a God who is constructive in building something strong through your life, a church's life, in order to have a dynamic presence in the county, in our case, of Sheboygan. No matter which town or city you're found in and beyond. 
And here now, Timothy is drinking this in. So this is how you have a constructive ministry. Able to build you up. Now you ask yourself personally and relationally, in your conversations, day in, day out, are you constructive or destructive? Do you bring joy into their presence when there's this sense where things seem to be going wrong and you're ministering to people who are on the front lines of the difficult challenges of life? You build them up because of God. He's able to build you up, number one, able to give you the inheritance, number two, which comes from the fact that Jesus Christ died and on the third day rose again and gives you and delivers for you that inheritance that is initially the down payment that comes through the working of the Holy Spirit when you came to saving faith and brought to conclusion the day in which you're glorified and stand before the Lord. And then thirdly, all who are sanctified. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul, in fact, described the church in Corinth where he would write to them, and he would write to them from Ephesus, and he would say in verse 2 of that first chapter, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord, you see, and ours now. You're pulling it together. There's the priority of construction build. There's the priority, you see, furthermore, of inheritance. There's the priority, furthermore, of sanctified. You group all those together, and you say, ah, I'm getting it. He treats me. He treats me like I never left. By the way, how do you treat others? How do you treat others who maybe at one point in their life veered in a different direction and now they've made their way back home? You've got a God who treats you like you never left. Have you embraced that truth? So there you are, and you're with the core seven people, the magnificent seven. There they were. They had got off the ship. They called the, the leaders from Ephesus, come on down. And they came down to Miletus. And Paul's teaching there in the Agora. Show a picture of the Agora. And he would be standing there in the marketplace, not far from the shoreline and doing what any professor, any theologian, any philosopher in the day and age would be doing. He would be in the open square and he'd be communicating. And Paul is communicating truth. And what he's offering is grace. He's teaching the word of grace. And Timothy is listening carefully. Timothy will someday be the pastor of that church. Paul would write eventually to the Ephesians from Rome, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, have been, this is, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And then later he would write to that young man who would be shepherding these people, Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. You see, you see. In fact, Ephesus percolates throughout the Bible. You see it not only in Acts, you see it furthermore in the book of Ephesians, and you see it in Paul's writings to Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy. You even see it in Revelation, where he would speak first to the church of Ephesus. He's constructive in a destructive culture. There's a second now. There's a second essential I want to draw out for you. There we are. We're near the shoreline. We're in Miletus. You've been establishing priorities that are pleasing to God, the building up, the inheritance, the sanctification, but it's all done by the work of his, the word of his grace. You're commending others, you see. But now, the second essential, not only establishing priorities that are pleasing to God, but second of all, modeling giving that's honoring to God. You pick it up now in verse 33, don't you? And here you and I find Paul speaking autobiographically in Ephesus. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Stop right there. Why is that so significant? Because the tradesmen in the town of Ephesus who were so involved in the religious work in Ephesus of casting in gold and silver false gods, idols. Paul is now contrasting himself to them, distinguishing himself because they were involved in the religious profit-making industry of idolatry. And so he came on and he determined to do something totally different and using his tent-making skills and his rabbinical training, then he then made certain that he would distinguish them himself within that idolatrous setting so that they would be able to think, oh, he's not like them. Now, likewise, you've got to figure out a way in this culture for people to say, aha, he, she, they're not like the rest. Stand out, which is your pivotal moment to be able to reveal grace. So how did he meet needs? Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, God's sovereign, he just so lined this passage for Reach Sunday. I mean, my word, we started Acts back in 2019. And here we now have words about what Jesus had said here in verse 35. Finding ways to minister to such a degree that the word of grace is being shared relationally as well as in didactic form teaching. And you are always looking for the needs of others. Spurgeon, he and his wife, they would sell in a time in which there was a plague that was coming down hard upon London. They would sell eggs, their chickens laid. 
And even close relatives were told you may have them if you pay for them. It's 1800s, you see. So some people labeled Pastor Spurgeon greedy, grasping. But he and his wife, they took the criticisms without defending themselves, the writer tells us. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died, the full story was revealed. All the profits from the sale of the eggs went to support two elderly widows because the Spurgeons were unwilling to, as the Bible would put it, let their left hand know what the right hand was doing, which is kind of the way I play the piano, by the way. (laughs) They endured attacks in silence. That's the strength of grace. Be able to smile when somebody makes an assumption that's invalid and you keep communicating grace. You doing that? All right. We're on to the third and the final ascension, essential. Here it comes. That out of verses 36 down through verse 38, This kind of biblically-based leadership theory is involved in cultivating fellowship that is blessed by God. This congregation, both gathered and scattered states, relationally, informally during the week, formally on Sundays, but even as I speak via live stream right now, we love you, and YouTube in coming days, There's a connectedness here. There's a oneness here. Even in the shoreline of our own personal experiences. Because in verse 36, Paul's now finished speaking and teaching. He's influencing others to do what needs to be done for the glory of God, which is what leadership is all about. Influence. When he had said these things, Luke the physician tells us, He knelt down. He took the initiative of prayer. He knelt down and prayed with them all. Within the rich relationships of fellowship, it's got to be marked and distinguished by people, the people of grace, who pray and pray in a way in which is honoring to God, even in the difficult times of life such as what Ulysses S. Grant faced. He was fighting in the ultimate final battle of his life, cancer. Well, there was another general, General O. Howard, strong, believing follower of Jesus Christ, came to check on his old colleague, President, They spoke for a time about some of the battles of the Civil War they had been part of, and then suddenly, and be ready for such times as these. Grant interrupted Howard with these words. Howard, tell me what you know about prayer. And there, in the face of death, though he had achieved a lot of victory on the battlefield, he was given the comfort and assurance of knowing grace 
found in putting faith and trust in Jesus as Lord Savior and that you can pray to God through Jesus if you know Christ as your Savior as Grant committed his life to the Lord. Teach me to pray. So at the very end, just as Jesus was teaching his disciples in that upper room in John 17 to pray, here now is the Apostle Paul, the shoreline of Miletus, bowing, teaching the leadership of Ephesus, who are about to return to that, that idolatrous city of Ephesus to pray. He's very vertical. He's committing them to God and the word of his grace. He prays with them. And we're told in verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, typical Middle Eastern fashion. And they, uh, because of the word he had spoken, they kissed him. Still pondering the word, in verse 38, we're told they're wrestling with the fact they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Goodbyes are hard. We've gone through it. It's the commonplace of our experience. When Douglas MacArthur was leaving the Philippines, great general, he wrote, on the dock, I could see the men staring at me. Through the adversity, I had lost 25 pounds, living on the same diet as the soldiers. I looked gaunt, ghastly, standing there in my old war-stained clothes. No medals on a commander to inspire. Darkness fallen, waters rippling, the night coming. Enemy firing had ceased. A muttering silence had fallen. It was as though the dead were passing by the stench of destruction. How do I bring about construction? The smell of filth thickened the night air when I suddenly raised my cap in a farewell salute. I could feel my face go white, feel a sudden convulsive twitch in the muscles of my face. I heard someone ask another, What's the general's chance, Sarge, of getting through? The gruff reply came, Dunno, he's a lucky one, maybe one in five. I stepped aboard the PT-41 and said, you may cast off, Buck, when you are ready. Paul is about to cast off. He's about to head to Jerusalem to be put on trial. Here is the setting where he would have cast off. It's a scene today, if you look carefully at the harbor, Miletus, and there people can, if they're following the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, ponder the significance of how he influenced others to do what needed to be done for the glory of God. And if you make your way furthermore to Rome, and spend time in the Basilica, here is a picture that will capture your attention. It's the picture of Paul saying goodbye. Three essentials of leadership, all based, you see, upon committing people to God 
and to the word of his grace. Let's stand together. And so, Father, people want to be led, but they want to be led well. And there is no greater opportunity to lead well than we are committed to God and to the word of grace. And so may each and every one in these services today and all who've been participating off-site in this worship experience find that the Holy Spirit is shaping, guiding, directing, for he is the ultimate leader to equip us to be constructive in a destructive realm, to bring honor and glory to your name, and to bring people who need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to saving faith. And for this, Father, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.